0: ahead and find our seats, please. We are in the book of Zephaniah, chapter 2, and I want to look at verses 4 through 10 this evening with you. Judgment on the nations, plural, Judgment on the Nations, part 1. And uh, as you look on the overhead, uh, Zephaniah has as its theme the coming day of the Lord, and as we follow the outline... Uh, We first have a warning to Judah concerning coming judgment, and now God's judgment on specific nations. Both the book of Joel as well as Zephaniah have as their theme the day of the Lord. And as we think about that, the day of the Lord, this coming day of the Lord, is a major theme throughout the prophets. In the Old Testament, it is also addressed in the New Testament. So, So it is really a major theme. Here is my definition of uh, the day of the Lord, what we're talking about. The day of the Lord is the time when God overtly intervenes in human affairs, especially in relationship to Israel, with catastrophic judgment in fulfillment of prophecy, which overwhelmingly demonstrates His Lordship. You do understand the day of the Lord is all about the Lord, it's all about His Lordship. That's the point that He is making uh, with everybody. And I've mentioned this before. Uh, there are layers of emphasis in relationship to the coming day of the Lord judgment. There is a, an emphasis prophetically in relationship to the coming Babylonian captivity, uh, fulfilled now at this point. But then there's also a judgment uh, of the day of the Lord in reference to the second coming, that period leading up to the second coming. And then there's a judgment in reference to the dissolving of this present heaven and earth at the close of the millennial reign of Christ. So we do see this aspect where there, the prophet is prophesying, there's a near fulfillment, and there's a far fulfillment in relationship to the, the day of the Lord, uh, prophetic telescoping as it's often called. Well, in Zephaniah, we see both aspects of the day of the Lord judgment interwoven into the, into the text, the near and the, and the distant. We see coming judgment in relationship to the Babylonian captivity. And then we see judgment also in relation to the the second coming of the Messiah. Well, after warning the Jews of this dark day of judgment that was coming, as seen in Zephaniah uh, chapter 1, then Zephaniah chapter 2 verses 1 through 3 present this threefold emphasis, really, which amounts to a, a summons to get ready and be right with the Lord. And uh, note the emphasis there. Gather, gather, before, 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 seek, seek, seek. Uh, That's the emphasis we have in those three verses. Each verse here carries a a specific emphasis. This undesirable, shameless nation of the Jews is summoned to gather back to the land of Israel before the coming day of the Lord. And there they are told to seek the Lord, that they, they might be hidden in the day of the Lord's anger. Well, this appeal to the Jews to seek the Lord and thus really be involved in God's program is now strengthened by reminding them, as he prophesies the destruction of Israel's enemies, that God keeps his unconditional promises to his people. God is the God of all the nations, and he holds all the nations accountable for his truth that he has revealed in conjunction with his people Israel. Israel is uniquely God's witness nation, and God holds the world accountable for it. I fear that the church today, God's people today, have largely overlooked the prophets. We don't see the value of the prophets. And yes, I'm all about the church. This is the church age, and God is building a forever family called the church. But don't forget the prophets. Uh, There's a major, major theme. There's a major point that the prophets are making. Yes, Israel would be judged and humbled in the day of the Lord, but those nations that led Israel to stumble and treated her with contempt would also experience the fury of God's wrath. Well, Zephaniah, in chapter 2, addressed the enemies surrounding Israel, perhaps in a representative way. He addressed Philistia to the west, verses 4 through 7, Moab and Ammon to the east, verses 8 through 11, Ethiopia to the south, verse 12, and finally Assyria, (coughs) excuse me, Assyria to the north. So let's look uh, on the map what we're looking at tonight as far as our study. Uh, Here we got Philistia to the west, and we've got Moab and Ammon to the east here. And of course, uh, you know, we're going to talk about Ethiopia next week down here to the south, and Assyria up here to uh, the north. But tonight, we're talking to the west, Philistia and Ammon and Moab here to the east. Every direction here. All all these enemies surrounding Israel are really being addressed. Much of the judgment prophesied here relates to the time of the Babylonian captivity when Babylon not only took captive Israel, but they also destroyed many other people groups in the process as well. However, as seen, and, and by the way, with that... Israel, did uh, Judah, made a comeback after the Babylonian captivity. They were brought back. But a lot of these other people groups did not make a comeback. However, as seen in verse 11 here, there is an ultimate, distant, complete fulfillment which will be realized in conjunction with the judgment of Christ's second coming and with the establishment of His kingdom. And I'll get to that, Lord willing, next time. But note verse 4. Zephaniah 2, verse 4. For Gaza shall be forsaken and Ashkelon desolate. They shall drive out Ashdod at noonday, and Ekron shall be uprooted. What we have named here are four principal cities of Philistia, that is, of the Philistines. Uh, Gath is not included. Usually that's the fifth major city there. It's not included perhaps because the city at this time had already become subject to Judah. Uh, We're not specifically told why. And notice it says that... uh, Uh, Ashdod, uh, they shall drive out Ashdod at noonday. Evidently, Ashdod fell very quickly uh, at noonday would maybe indicate within a half-day's time frame. Or perhaps they were caught off guard at noonday, as that was not the normal time to be engaging in battle. Uh, Whatever's in view there. It's interesting, that little statement, they shall drive out Ashdod at noonday. But here, again, is what we're looking at on the map as far as these cities. Uh, Right along the coast here. Gaza, Ashkelon, Ashdod, Ekron. Now, uh, Gath already was, again, uh, subdued at this point. So maybe that's why it's not addressed. But these four major cities are addressed. These uh, four cities of the Philistines. At the time of the Babylonian invasion, Babylon crushed Philistia. Uh, the Philistines as a constituted group of people then disappeared from the scene of history. Gaza was the capital city of this area and appropriately means forsaken. After the Babylonian captivity, the Jews would come back to this area and use it as a pasture land. So it goes on to say here, verse 5, Woe to the inhabitants of the seacoast, the nation of the Cherethites, the word of the Lord is against you, O Canaan, land of the Philistines. I will destroy you, so there shall be no inhabitant. The Cherethites were a Philistine clan, if you will. And it is believed that they originated from, from Crete. The word Canaan here means lower, or flat, referring to the lowland along the coast where the, the Cherethites dwelt. And there were several, by the way, Cherethite warriors in David's army. So there were still a few of them uh, around, even later in the, in the time of David. David Levy says the Philistines in the Mediterranean uh, coastal plains, before were, uh, they lived there before the time of Abraham. They were the descendants of Ham and came from Crete. Well, the name uh, Philistine, uh, is a, or, the, or rather the name Palestine, is a Roman word linked with the word Philistine. Uh, We talk about Palestine. Some people today even talk about Palestine. And it is a word that is is linked with Philistine and uh, referring to the, the biblical land of the Philistines. The word fell out of use but was then revived by the British when they assumed supervision over the land in 1920. It again fell by the wayside as a legal description once again when Israel became a nation in 1948. I don't talk about uh, the Holy Land as Palestine. It's not Palestine to me. It's the Holy Land. It belongs to the Jews. It doesn't belong to the Philistines. And by the way, where are the Philistines? <laughs> they're not there. Uh, they're not there anymore. Verse six: The seacoast shall be pastures with shelters for shepherds and folds for flocks. The coast shall be for the remnant of the house of Judah. They shall feed their flocks there. In the houses of Ashkelon, they shall lie down at evening, for the Lord their God will intervene for them and return their their captives. Well, after the time of the Babylonian captivity, the Philistines no longer inhabited this area. It then became a place of pastures, and shepherds used it. Uh, The Jews who were shepherds used it. So God turned the situation around as... Emphasized here in this verse, verse 7. Whereas the Philistines had historically antagonized Israel, now the Jews would rule this coastal area. And they did. This turn of events is seen as a God thing. Uh, He would intervene in bringing a remnant of Jews back from the Babylonian captivity who would then ultimately occupy this area previously held by the Philistines. And this was fulfilled to the letter. Again, David Levy says this. This promise was fulfilled in 536 B.C. when Judah returned from the Babylonian captivity. It will be further fulfilled during the millennium. By the way, this phrase here at the end, when it talks about return their captives, is sometimes translated as restore their fortunes. It's really a technical formula that we find pretty regular in the Old Testament. Uh, referring to the restoration of Israel. Verse 8, I have heard the reproach of Moab and the insults of the people of Ammon with which they have reproached my people and made arrogant threats against their borders. One thing that comes out repeatedly in the Scriptures is that even though God's people Israel are in sin... Yet at the same time, God does not appreciate those who abuse Him. Even though God often uses the Gentiles to discipline His people, Israel, at the same time, He holds those Gentiles accountable for mistreating His people. We are right now living in what is called the times of the Gentiles, where Jerusalem is downtrodden by the Gentiles, and God is allowing that to take place. But if you would go to Joel chapter 3, you will see one of the reasons God brings the world to judgment at Armageddon is because of how they have treated his people, Israel, and how they have divided up his land. God doesn't appreciate what the Gentiles have done to his people during the times of the Gentiles. So even though God often uses the Gentiles, he does not appreciate them mistreating his people, the Jews. And I submit to you that principle is still true to this very day. Jeremiah chapter 25 Behold, I will send and take all the families of the north, says the Lord, and Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, my servant, and will bring them against this land, against its inhabitants, against these nations all around, and will utterly destroy them and make them an astonishment of hissing and perpetual desolations. Note there, God calls Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, my servant, And yet a few verses later in verse 12, then it will come to pass when 70 years are completed that I will punish the king of Babylon and that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquity, says the Lord, and I will make it a perpetual desolation. It's interesting. Was Nebuchadnezzar the servant of the Lord? Or was he uh, somebody that should be punished? Well, (laughs) yes, both. What was the problem? What was the problem? Didn't God want to use Babylon, going so far as to call Nebuchadnezzar my servant? Well, yes, he did. But here was the problem. We see this in different references. For example, in Isaiah 47, verse 6, it says, I was was angry with my people, God speaking. I was angry with my people, and I have profaned my inheritance and given them into your hand. This, This is Babylon in context we're talking about. A whole chapter of Isaiah 47, really addressing Babylon. I've given them into your hand, God says, but yet you showed them no mercy. I gave them into your hand, but you went too far. You showed them no mercy. On the elderly, you laid your yoke very heavy, very heavily. Again, Jeremiah 50, verse 11. Because you were glad, because you rejoiced, you destroyers of my heritage, because you have grown fat like a heifer threshing grain, and you bellow like bulls. So God does not appreciate their attitude in what they did in destroying his heritage. So here's the point. Even if God is angry with his people, Israel, which he was, even if he gives them over into Gentile hands, which he did, yet they better be careful because they are still his people. And God takes it very personally personally how they are treated. In showing no regard for Israel, those who reproach and insult them, in effect, show no respect for the God of Israel. And such was the case with Moab and Ammon. Now, Moab and Ammon were the blood relatives of the Jews. Moab and Ammon descended from Lot's daughters through incest, as seen in Genesis 19. And as history developed... The people groups who came from these, these sons of incest became the perpetual enemies of the Jews. In Numbers 22, the Moabite king named uh, Balak uh, sought to hire the evil prophet Balaam to curse Israel. During the time of the judges, Moab and Ammon repeatedly tried to defeat Israel. Consistently, they arrogantly violated Judah's borders, showing no respect to them as a people, no regard For Israel's covenant God named Yahweh, who had given them them the land. We call it the promised land, as it was promised to the Jews. Well, because Moab and Ammon uh, had relentlessly abused God's people, the Jews, they were to be punished accordingly. Notice verse 9. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, surely Moab shall be like Sodom, and the people of Ammon like Gomorrah overrun with weeds and salt pits and a perpetual desolation. The residue of my people shall plunder them and the remnant of my people shall possess them. Sin always creates a therefore. So says Dr. David Jeremiah. I like that. Sin always creates a therefore. Verse 9, therefore. How true, because of the haughty abuse of the Jews, therefore, verse 9. They're going to be like Sodom and Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah in the Bible are proverbial for total destruction. They are often used as outstanding examples of being completely and utterly overthrown to where they are no more. God literally blew Sodom and Gomorrah off of the map. And where are they today? Where is Sodom and Gomorrah today? Well, we don't know. They've been so completely removed that we don't know for sure where Sodom and Gomorrah were. Uh, One good guess is that they are perhaps under the Dead Sea. You know, the whole area of the Dead Sea is overrun with weeds and salt pits. And nothing lives in the Dead Sea. You know, it's called dead for a reason, right? The Dead Sea is dead. There's no fish in the Dead Sea. There's no seaweed in the Dead Sea. There's nothing in the Dead Sea except for salt and minerals. Everything's dead there. When we were in Israel, we went swimming in the Dead Sea, if you want to call it that. You can't drown there because everything is buoyant. Uh, You can't, you know, you just float there. It's so full of salt and minerals that that everything just floats. This, This is true to life here. See this person reading their little newspaper out there? It's that point. It's true. I've been there. And when we were there, I purposely tasted the water. And let me tell you, it is, it is flavorful beyond imagination. Did you taste it, Vince? Yes. Yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, you feel like you've been in a, a salt mix or some kind of mix. You get out of there, you can't wait to get to the showers. That's for sure. But, uh, you know, it's very, very salty and minerally and, and uh, you know, it, you get the feeling that this, this is not normal. And uh, the ocean is salty too, but this is a whole other level here. Uh, well, whatever happened to the Moabites and the Ammonites? Well, bottom line, they are no more. They are no more. Uh, again, David Levy says, God used Saul and David to defeat Ammon while Jehoram and Jehoshaphat defeated Moab as prophesied by Zephaniah, the lands of Moab and Ammon, corresponding uh, to large sections in in Jordan today, in the country of Jordan, have largely remained a perpetual desolation through the centuries. J. Vernon McGee says, I have visited a few countries in my lifetime, and the poorest country that I've ever been in is the modern nation of the Hashemite kingdom of Jordan. It occupies what was the land of the Moabites and the Ammonites. And it is largely a desolate place. I mean, yeah, this is kind of, you know, these are bad. This is a bad picture. But there's a lot of bad pictures here. Uh, You know, you got Petra there, which is kind of interesting. But, uh, you know, you you just don't want to move to Jordan, guys. You know, I I wouldn't mind moving to Israel, but I don't want to go to Jordan. Anyway... Note, God says, as I live, which is the language of an oath, God swears by himself because there is no higher authority by which to emphasize his resolute commitment to do this. And he is the Lord of hosts. Uh, That is Yahweh who rules over the armies of heaven. Host here refers to really God's angelic army. God rules over the armies of heaven. Uh, He is the Lord of hosts. And there's a double emphasis here on who he is as the God of Israel, which is what we really want to bring out here. Therefore, as I live, says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Strong emphasis. The name Lord in this phrase, Lord of hosts, is Yahweh, which is God's covenant name, signifying his eternal covenant relationship with his people Israel. This is followed up by the God of Israel. Lord Yahweh, the the covenant God of Israel, the God of Israel. So there's a double emphasis here to make the point. This is the key point in this surrounding context. The surrounding nations of Israel refused to take the God of Israel serious, as seen in their mistreatment of Israel. Yes, God held his people Israel accountable for their sin, but he also held the surrounding nations accountable for the truth of who he is as the God of Israel which is to say the one true God is revealed through Israel. The nations of the world should never lose sight of that because when they do, they have lost sight of the one true God. And in the end, that spells disaster. Following the Babylonian captivity, the Jews would also possess this territory in in part, but the final fulfillment again of this awaits the millennial kingdom when Israel will finally possess all the land that God promised them in the Abrahamic Covenant, as seen in Genesis 15. But notice, even uh, when Solomon took over, uh, you got uh, you know this area under David, uh, and then this area under Solomon, territory of Israel before David. So e- even then, you know you have uh, this whole area here is comes under uh, Israel's control as you go along. Certainly under David and under Solomon. Now, ultimately, uh, this is what God has promised to Israel as stated to Abraham in terms of the boundaries that we find in Genesis. In Genesis 15, 18, on the same day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram saying, to your descendants, I have given this land from the river of Egypt to the great river, the river Euphrates. So if we were to break this down and put this on a map, it looks something like this. The, The river in Egypt here, all the way over here in, in you know, Babylon, Iraq, the, the river Euphrates. So it, the borders are really going to be, they've never had all of this land up to this point. But uh, from all that territory across there is one day going to be Israel's because God promised it to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. Verse 10. This they shall have for their pride, They're going to become like Sodom and Gomorrah. Why? Because of their pride. Because they have reproached and made arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. Note again, God states the actions of Moab and Ammon to be a matter of pride. In verse 8, he spoke of their arrogant threats. And here in verse 10, he speaks of their pride in daring to make arrogant threats against the people of the Lord of hosts. There's a lot of emphasis here on arrogance and pride. Three times we have this emphasized in verse 8 and in verse 10. It's a really big deal to mess with Israel because in doing so, one messes with God himself. I was talking children's moment. The the one nation we have in the world, you know, the the chosen nation is not the United States. It's it's Israel. And that's still true. Israel is stated to be the apple of God's eye. Deuteronomy 32.10 And God is really sensitive when it comes to Israel. And it is the height of prideful arrogance to dare to mess with Israel. And the day of the Lord climaxes with the whole world pridefully taking on the God of Israel in daring to attack Israel in relation to the second coming. You know, there's lots of places we could go, but we find in the book of Zechariah, chapter 14, Behold, the day of the Lord is coming. What's going to happen? And your spoil will be divided in your midst. I will gather all nations to battle against Jerusalem, the, what the Jews call their eternal capital. The city shall be taken, the houses rifled, Women ravished, half the city shall go into captivity, but the remnant of the people shall not be cut off from the city. But I want you to see that there. The day of the Lord is coming, and what's going to happen there? All the nations will come against Jerusalem. And again, at the end of the millennial reign of Christ, Satan will be released out of his prison. Read this at the end in, in Revelation chapter 20. And once again, Satan will go out and deceive the nations. And the Bible says those who follow him will be as the the number, as the sand of the sea. In other words, uh, hyperbole speaking, an innumerable, huge, massive amount of humanity. And what are they going to do? Well, they will dare to arrogantly march on Jerusalem, the capital of, of Israel. The capital of the great king at that point. And here's what's going to happen. Revelation 20 verse 7 through 9, Now when the thousand years have expired, Satan will be released from his prison and go out and deceive the nations which are on the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, uh, which is a type here that carries over here, uh, a type of arrogance that dares to come against Israel, uh, to gather them together to battle, whose number is as the sand of the sea. And they went up on the breadth of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. That, my friends, is Jerusalem. Well, God responds, Shh. fire came down out of heaven and devoured them. End of story. This is sheer arrogance to threaten the borders of Israel. To dare to overthrow God's people. At the concluding phase of each layer of the day of the Lord's judgment, God shows His Lordship over the prideful rebellion of the nations as they are put down in relation to Israel. It's so true. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. And it is the height of arrogance to think that you can take on God in relationship to His people Israel. And we got this whole Old Testament showing where God stands in relationship to Israel. This is the besetting sin of mankind and ultimately before the God of Israel The whole world will be humbled in reference to Israel. God is going to do this in relationship to Gog and Magog. He is going to do it in relationship to the whole world that is under Antichrist when they come against Jerusalem. And he will do it again at the conclusion of the millennium as they once again march on Jerusalem. Here's where the nations are. In the March-April edition of Israel My Glory in an article titled UN Rewrites Temple Mount History they report the following and I'm quoting here now the UN General Assembly recently passed a resolution that calls Jerusalem's Temple Mount by its Muslim name only. The so-called Jerusalem resolution is part of Islam's effort to erase Erase Jewish history and rebrand the site as exclusively Islamic. Adopted by a vote of 129 to 11 with 31 abstentions, the resolution refers to the Temple Mount, the holiest site in Judaism, solely as Haram al Sharif, the noble sanctuary. In Arabic. This is reflective of what the world thinks about Yahweh, the holy covenant God of Israel. And Jerusalem is the epicenter, with the Temple Mount being the core of the epicenter. This is what the world thinks about Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel. They honor the false God of Islam over the true God of Israel. This is reflective of the arrogant spirit of Psalm 2, where the world in the end plots together against Yahweh and His anointed. And yet Psalm 2.5 says, God shall speak to them in His wrath. And verse 6 says, He will then set His King, that is King Jesus, on the holy hill, Mount Zion. The battle is about Jerusalem, ultimately. The battle is about the Temple Mount. And God's going to win that battle. Charles Feinberg rightly says, The nations are exceedingly dull in learning how greatly they displease the Lord when they deal in pride against the nation whom He has chosen as His medium for worldwide blessing. How true that is. It's still true. God blesses those who bless Israel. And he curses those who curse Israel. Let us be among those who bless Israel. I want to be a friend of Israel because the God of Israel is still the God of Israel. He's the God of the church. That's true. But he's still the God of Israel. And as we go along in history, we look at what's going on in the world. God has a program in relationship to Israel. And He reveals Himself to the world in conjunction with the nation of Israel. That's still true today. All the disciplinary passages have been fulfilled. Israel's been under discipline. They're they're in blindness, as we saw last time in Zephaniah 2, verse 1. But God still has a plan for them. And to mess with Israel, even though they're out of sync, they're out of the will of God, they're in rebellion. You still don't want to mess with Israel because to do, show, do so shows disregard for the God of Israel who is still ultimately uh, the, God, uh, the covenant God of Israel. All right, let's stand and have our closing song and then I'll close us in prayer this evening.